Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello everyone and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable, and successful for years to come. Today our topic is one that has been an ongoing point of confusion, or should I say lack of knowing the rules and expectations of having a compliance plan. How are you conducting your internal monitoring and auditing of workflows, coding, billing, medical processes, etc.? And I don't know if many of you knew this, but did you know that with the passage of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010, physicians who treat Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries are required to establish a, compliant, establish a compliance program. It's on the OIG website, and many practices and clients that I have do not even realize this rule. So we thought it was time to bring this to your attention through the NSCHBC because we are the business of medicine. And now that there's also a mandate for a compliance plan under the Omnibus Act for COVID vaccine mandates, no better time than the present to discuss it. Tackling these topics with me today is fellow NSCHBC member, certified healthcare business consultant, Sean Weiss. Sean is the partner and vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. Sean serves as a chief compliance officer for numerous nationally recognized healthcare organizations around the country. He's engaged in the development of customized corporate compliance programs, including standard operating procedures, policies, corrective action plans, investigations, and maintaining their culture of compliance. Sean also has over 25 years in the healthcare industry, as I do, and he has an extensive knowledge, which that's why I love talking to him, of the inner workings of government agencies, both at the federal and state level, including the OIG, Department of Justice, and the United States Attorney's Office. So, Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Terry. I appreciate you inviting me on this uh, this podcast. Thank you. Yeah, Sean is actually one of our, I think you're one of the, the they call them senior members of the NSCHBC. You've been around a long time. <laughs> I'm an old man. You're an old guy. Um, so I'm in my fourth year there. How many years have you been with NSCHBC? Um, gosh, it's got to be eight years. Eight years now. Okay. So we, yeah. we definitely have had some some long-term members on the podcast, and, and we appreciate our listeners that are coming in to hear about what's next in the, in the world of the business of medicine. So we want to talk about compliance manuals, and I know you're probably thinking, well, that topic's, you know, interesting, but it's, it's like this is something that basically is your proof that you conduct not just training, but that you have something to respond to a detective detected offensive with with something that's happened in your office and how you have corrective action that's the best way i can describe a um a compliance manual so now that this is part of our daily conversations and mandates seem to be what we're talking about i want sean's insight because he is again the compliance guru on what is recommended or suggested when it comes to compliance manuals and let's start with front office so call centers, reception desks, you know, procedural versus compliance. Is it mandated that a front office in a medical practice has a compliance manual? Yeah. So, you know, there's there's some interesting uh, conversations that take place, uh, you know, when you start to use the term mandated. Um, the, the biggest mandates that we have, obviously, are those that are enforced by the Office for Civil Rights, which is, you know, for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Now, 
when you get into OIG compliance, OIG compliance for the most part is still voluntary, but it's something that we always tell people is strongly urged and strongly recommended. But then you have other facets, right? If you're going to participate with Medicare Part C, with some of the commercial payers, they are now requiring you to have a corporate compliance program. Under the omnibus rule um, that was issued by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, you know, there are mandates and those mandates are, are enforceable. They will be um, uh, surveys that take place uh, unannounced. Uh, they will be on site and they will be looking for entities and individuals that are out of compliance with what these mandates are. So, yeah, we need to have policies and procedures uh, for our front desk staff. We need to have them for our business uh, uh, offices. Uh, we want to make sure that everybody understands what their role and what their obligations are with respect to compliance as it pertains to the CMS omnibus rule. And this is more than just a job description of front office or backup clinical offices or what an MA or an ancillary staff can do, correct? That is correct. Yeah, many of you may have job descriptions. So this is what your nurse practitioner PAs do. This is what your medical assistant can do. And trust me, that is a big one. You definitely want to have that in there because liberties are being taken with that. But job descriptions versus compliance with payers and especially the government is a little bit different. And Sean brought up something, and we're gonna talk about the omnibus in a second, but one of the things that I've noticed in, so as I'm negotiating some contracts for you know money and, and certain services for physicians, I noticed in the United Healthcare policy and two uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield policies, they actually have a contract provision saying you have to have a compliance manual. Yeah. Uh, and, and and again, you know, that could very easily fall under conditions of participation, very similar to what you see with Medicare, you know, certified facilities, right? right? You know, what they call those that are regulated. So, you know, if you have a contractual obligation with a commercial payer to have a compliance program and you fail to do that, that is grounds for termination of that contract. And that is true. So let, let's take it, let's split it up between two different things. So, Sean and I both mentioned the omnibus rule and that all that really is that omnibus act is that's for the COVID, COVID vaccine mandate. So we're going to put that aside for a second. Right. But the OIG has actually just on their website, all you have to do is Google compliance programs for physicians. And the first thing that pops up is the office of inspector general. And it says, by the way, <laughs> patient protection and affordable care act of 2010. If you treat a Medicare or Medicaid patient, you will be required to establish a compliance program. So Sean, I have a question on that. Sometimes this, the, um, the speak, I, I hate to call it the language, but the speak of the OIG and the, the, you know, how they word things is unclear. So I could see a physician saying, well, it says we're required, but it doesn't say it's mandatory. So what's the difference between required and mandatory when it comes to that? Yeah, there's no difference when, <laughs> okay. when you're, yeah, when you're when you're talking about something that's definitive language uh, issued by the Office of Inspector General, 
there's no differentiation between mandate versus required. So, <laughs> so I, I, I'm hoping we could cut that one off at the pass right here. Well, let's say you go to a practice as I have, and they're saying, you know, Terry, we'd like you to do an audit or we'd like you to educate our staff. And I'll say, okay, can I see your compliance manual? And I know you've had this conversation because I have it all the times. time. And they say, what compliance manual? And they're CMS providers. What do you do? You know, short of banging my head against the wall, <laughs> you know, um, you know it, it, it's so hard because there's been so much misinformation put out there over the years. And, you know, one of the things I find myself doing a lot of times is having to clean up behind other individuals that are quote unquote consultants Me too. that for whatever reason, you know, I, I tell people all the time, find your lane and stay in it. Yes. And if your lane is finances, stay in finances. If your lane is coding and billing, stay in coding and billing. If your lane is compliance, well, you better know it and you better understand it. But for me, I think a practice manager, an office administrator, uh, somebody in in a leadership role has to, irrespective of whether they want to or not, they have to understand what is required of their organization in order to be able to demonstrate a good faith effort during an investigation. And when I have somebody say to me, what compliance plan, you know, I, I usually kind of shrug and say, okay, well, that's something that I need to add to our list of things to discuss. Things to do. Exactly. Yeah. And um, that's what I do too. I mean, it's not, yeah. that, it's not that they've done anything fraudulent. It's basically that they haven't completed their, you know, compliance program as required, again, required. They haven't established it as required by the, the Medicare and Medicaid beneficiary uh, act that, that um, affordable care act. So it's been out for, I guess, 11 years now. And I'm not seeing a lot of legal enforcement of it, but I am seeing it when there's other things found from, let's say, an auditing perspective. It's the first thing they look for. So, for example, I, you know, recently did an audit for uh, WPS and they said, oh, by the way, and it's kind of, it reminds me of A Few Good Men. Remember that movie where Tom Tom Cruise says, oh, by the way, can I have the transfer log order, (laughs) you know, and and Jack Nicholson says, excuse me, (laughs) you know, or ask me nicely or whatever. And so it's kind of like that. They're like, oh, by the way, can I have your compliance manual? And they, you know, you get deer in headlights and they're like, um, well, we're working on it. And they're like, well, you need to have it to us within 24 hours. So you need to, we need to have it produced, you know, at a certain time frame." So it is required. So for those of you that are listening, if you treat a Medicare Medicaid patient, you are required to establish a compliance program. And if you go to the oig.hhs.gov, they actually have bullets. They say it's conduct an internal monitoring and auditing. They give you a link of their compliance program guidance for individual and small group physician practices. It's kind of like a template. Um, They show you how to implement the compliance and practice standards that has to be included. You should have a compliance officer or contact, uh, conduct appropriate training and education. That's a big one. How you respond and detect offenses and develop a corrective action. Um, There should be open lines of communication with employees and how that's documented. And then enforce disciplinary standards through well-publicized guidelines. So everybody should know what's happening if something isn't followed. And 
Sean, I don't know if you find this out, but usually when I, this is, I don't know why this happens, but whenever I go to a practice and I say, who's your compliance officer? And let's just for argument's sake, they have one. It's always the doctor that's documenting terrible. Oh yeah. I'm like, why oh, yeah. is the compliance officer always the doctor that's non-compliant? Yeah. Uh, well, because it just makes perfect sense, right? <laughs> but, you know, so so you you address the seven elements of the compliance program and it and and that's great, but there's one that's missing. What's that? And that's step number eight. That's the performance of a risk assessment. Yes, that's that's true. You gotta have a risk assessment. And and without it, you you there's no way you can fully speak to having an effective corporate compliance program. And the reason why I bring that out is because if you look at the um, if you look at the 2020 evaluation of corporate compliance programs issued by the criminal division of the Department of Justice, they at nauseum discuss the performance of a risk assessment and, and what a prosecutor should be looking for. And I'll tell people all the time, if you have not read that 20 page document, you're missing out because that is a prosecutor's playbook. I, I teach a course called the prosecutor's playbook, and that is one of the guidance documents that I use to help people understand what it is that a, um, a prosecutor should or must do prior to an indictment, meaning a charging document. If they're going to enter into a uh, settlement agreement, an essay, or if they're going to offer what's called a deferred prosecution agreement, which means basically you stipulate as a defendant that the government has enough evidence to proceed in court and most likely secure a guilty verdict against you. And you just, in your mind, you know, you don't want to do that. <laughs> so you're willing to say, Hey, I, I concede you're right. I'm going to enter into this. It's a deferred prosecution agreement. And usually you get some leniency with yeah. that, which is, which is very important, but you did bring up one of my favorite movies. Um, <laughs> I, I must've watched it a hundred times and, and Jack Nicholson as, as much as I like him, I think without a doubt that is his, his all time greatest role, especially when they're, when they're sitting down there in, um, in Cuba and he says, I eat breakfast 300 yards from 4,000 Cubans who are trying to kill me. Kill me. Yes. So don't think for one second that you can come down here and flash yeah. a badge and make me nervous. I know. Now, I know I don't have the Jack Nicholson voice. That's pretty good, though. It, it was close. But, you know, that's that's one of the best. Uh, that one and the quote from Malice, that movie Malice. Oh, I don't know yeah, if you remember that with Kidman. Alec Baldwin. Yeah. 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 You know. Because I am God. Because I am God. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Which, you know what? We kind of have to treat the government like this in a way. That's because, right. Well, the one thing I've noticed, and I bring up language and, and uh, you know, government speak and things like that. Right. Because so many things are inferred. Everybody's saying, well, this is what they meant. Or even the government does that. Well, it's right here in black and white. I'm like, no, it's here in gray. You basically said this, and it could mean this or that. It's just yeah. like the, you know, the the requirement versus the mandate, yeah. and um, that which brings up another thing on on these this compliance thing. So <clears throat> when you're looking at this from a, 
let's say everybody wants to be wants to have a compliance manner that covers everything you can't do that you right. should have one that is really for you know front office and and your, your your call center your reception things like that you should have that's my opinion you should have one for the clinical offices so from medical assistants to you know ancillary staff to your advanced practice providers and then your physicians but then you, and then you get into your billing coding offices and that's that's should be i think that should be mandatory i'm not sure if that is but definitely strongly recommended but here's something that that is interesting about now we're going to get into the omnibus act and the vaccine mandates we have osha and then we have medicare and that's what the omnibus is about medicare cms medicare which is this medicare medicaid right. and they're different remember they're they're not the same and i think you know our good friend uh brianna santoli who's a healthcare attorney also yeah. um, a cousin of mine she is awesome when she talks about this because she said it's you can't really i love her i love her statement you can't really call something a man a mandate if you have choices and That's she's right. right yeah and so on the osha side which is the small businesses over 100 which we now know there's all kinds of lawsuits and legal challenges on that but it says or testing or testing and mask wearing it's not right. just you have to be vaccinated but CMS is not so fast. <laughs> They're right. like everybody that comes in contact with a patient, even if you are an excluded, um, I should say covered entity or regulated entity, but if you're a doctor's office and you're not covered under that, but that doctor goes to the hospital who is, that doctor still has to follow the rules. That's right. So, so Sean, my, my question to you on this, you, would you have separate on there or would you have it in the same and just have two parts? And would you have a compliance plan on on the vaccine mandates? So yeah, you know, I great questions. Let me let me take the last one first. Um, you know, I don't know that you have to create a whole compliance program just on COVID nineteen. Although you pretty much could with all the guidance documents and all the regulations and and laws and acts and all the things that have been. Uh, uh, pushed out to us, uh, since 2020. Um, but I do, I do believe you want to supplement your corporate compliance program with either SOPs, you know, uh, standard operating policies or, um, new procedures. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I've been doing for, you know, my clients is, um, if I create their compliance program, we send them as new information comes about as new things are available to us. Um, we create new policies, we create new forms, new logs, new templates, and that just becomes an addendum or an attachment to their existing corporate compliance program. You know, I think the really interesting thing is how the CMS omnibus rule actually works, right? Because as you said, if you are a Medicare or Medicaid certified provider or supplier type, then this applies to you, right? So we're talking about ASCs, we're talking about community mental health centers, comprehensive outpatient rehabilitation facilities, or what they call CORFs, critical access hospitals, ESRD uh, facilities, home health agencies. And there's a whole entire list that you can, um, you can pull down from the federal register. Excuse me. So the, the one thing that I've gotten questions on is whether or not this requirement applies to staff who work off-site? And the answer is, absolutely it does. Um, these, these requirements are not 
limited to those staff who perform their duties solely within a formal clinical setting. If there's the potential that these individuals can come in contact with other members of the facility or your patients to ensure maximum patient protection, all staff who interact with other staff, patients, residents, clients, uh, part of the PACE program, if you will, um, they are obligated. They must be vaccinated. It's, it's, it's not a should be, it is a must be vaccinated. Um, the, the one clarification that I would add to that is if you have individuals who provide services 100% remotely and they have zero direct contact with any patients or any staff then they are not required to be vaccinated under this, this mandate. So that's a very big distinction. Yeah, I think the one thing, um, just getting back to should they have one or not, one of the things I'm actually in the omnibus rule right now on page 13, it says facilities should review the inclusion criterion for these regulations, re, um, comply with all of them, and they need to, let me get the right wording here. Mm -hmm. It says they should come up with a plan required to update their processes to make sure their compliance with this regulation and develop those processes. So it's kind of gray. I, you know, I don't know if it's mandated, but they're saying yeah. you should have something saying yeah. that you're taking care of it and you have it in writing somewhere. Yeah. So, so that's a good point. So, you know, for me, the, the, the takeaway that I get from that is, you know, I tell people all the time, if you truly have created a culture of compliance within your organization, you have a living, breathing document. And that living, breathing document is dependent upon a process. Having a process in place that says we update our policies and or procedures at a frequency of no less than annually or biannually, or we do it on a monthly basis. So to me, when I look at that, I agree with you. If you don't have an OIG corporate compliance program, which again, you really should because you're required to, according to the office of inspector general, if you deal with Medicare or Medicaid beneficiaries, make sure you, if you're not creating a, a COVID-19 specific plan, make sure that you are creating policies and procedures specific to the pandemic that you can tie directly into your overall corporate compliance program. And that's where I think I try to explain the difference between folks, you know, between these two folks. Your, your overall corporate compliance program is just that. It's your program. It's the all-encompassing document, right? That talks about training and education. It includes your front desk, your back office. It includes clinical. It includes billing, coding, and all of those. Then you have your plan. And for me, the plan is designated by area. And that's where you create your policies and procedures by area. And I think for me, COVID-19, because it really pertains to all individuals of these types of providers or supplier types, it fits directly into the overall corporate compliance program. But either way, you got to have it. 
You got to have it. And and I realize, and Sean and I both realize there's some legal challenges out there. That doesn't mean until they're resolved that you don't have to do it. <laughs> it means that they can still come back on you. That's right. And, and And that's such a great point, Terry, right? Because I think a lot of people look at this and they go, well, you know, the Fifth Circuit Court enjoined, you know, this meaning they 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 issued a stay. But the problem is it's a temporary stay until the court issues a final ruling. And, you know, the problem is you've got to have a contingency plan. Yes. Because if this thing goes through or if it goes through with modifications, you don't want to be playing catch up. You don't want to be behind the eight ball. You want to be out in front of this thing. So get with somebody who understands this stuff. There's, there's a lot of really incredible, really knowledgeable people out there that understand what's going on. You mentioned Brianna. I absolutely adore her. I think she's fantastic. (laughs) She's, she's such a, a rising star in the healthcare legal and regulatory world. And, you know, I can't wait for more people to really get to know her and, and learn about what she offers because I see her becoming the next Amanda Weish. I see her becoming the next Robert Lyles, the next, you know, Ron Chapman, the second, the next Gabe Empanado, the next Lester Peerling. I mean, you know, when you say, when you mention those names, they're synonymous yeah, with health law so and she's going to be there. Yeah, and she, yeah. For, for somebody who's, who's so young, she just, she just gets it. I, I just, yeah. I love talking to her. Yeah, she's but, awesome. So when we're talking, so we kind of covered what, you know, we both believe that you should have one and that the requirement, even though we can't just say to you, you're going to jail if you don't have one, the requirement means that if somebody comes knocking, that you better be able to support it or prove it. It's just like anything with documentation and compliance. If it's in your, um, any of your payer contracts, you need to have it. If you treat Medicare, Medicaid patients, you need to have one. Here's one. So here's separate uh, compliance manuals. And this kind of goes along the line, you know, Sean and I were just doing a podcast before this uh, regarding some of the OIG audits and things like that and the, and the um, work plans and encouraging people to get the alerts. But there's new things every day. And one of the things I teach for the NSCHBC is I present a quarterly Medicare webinar to go over all the things that come up so you don't have to, you know, keep wondering what those are. But for example, we had... Uh, HIPAA, <laughs> and that's with two A's, not two P's. Um, we, <laughs> so, you know, do, should you have a HIPAA manual, a compliance manual? We've had the information blocking, the Cures Act, that just became um, a really big deal this year. And now it's, you know, as of January 1st, that's going to be a big deal. On If a patient requests their information, not only do you have to give it to them within a certain time frame, you have to give it, deliver it to them in the way they want it. So if if they have, you know, an, an updoc or a certain kind of um, healthcare app on their phone and you have the ability to send it that way, you can't tell a patient, well, just go into your patient portal on our EMR and you can get your lab test. They can get it the way they want it or you're blocking it and that's a violation. So you do you believe that with some of these new things that have become now legal, you know, legal, I guess, uh, policies with the government uh, for healthcare providers that they should have compliance manuals on that. Oh gosh, absolutely. Um, you know, ONC, uh, is actually responsible for, um, you know, enforcement, if you will, of the information blocking rule. 
And this was all part of the 21st Century Cures, uh, Cures Act. And really, for me, you know, because there, this is an evolving aspect of compliance, um, I would say absolutely get going on building your um, information blocking policies. Make sure you understand the different types of formats. And I believe, Terry, I may have missed, I think you said there's three of them, but there yes. are. There's three, yeah, there's three formats to which you have to be able to provide it if the patient requests it that way. Make sure you understand and have the capabilities of at least providing it in one of the formats, which every practice should and 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 is able to. Um, but make sure you comply with the timeframes for being able to release this information. But also don't forget in psychotherapy and behavioral health in psychiatric services, those records are held to a completely different standard than those records coming out of an orthopedic surgeon's office, as an example, and make sure you understand what your rights are as a clinical psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist, you know, somebody providing behavioral health care services for an individual, make sure you understand what your rights are when it comes to what it is that you're expected to release. Don't just simply say, well, I'm not going to get nailed under the information blocking, so I'm just going to go ahead and release this information because you could be, be potentially violating the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. So be careful. Correct. Correct. And, and just so we, we clarify for everyone, I know uh, sometimes we'll throw out some acronyms you may not be familiar with. So ONC is the Office of the National Coordinator for Health and Information. Right. So we want to always make sure you, you get those because I know sometimes everybody's like, wait, what's that? <laughs> what are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, good call. You know, because we live in this world where we deal with acronyms all the time and we're so used to these terms. Yeah, thank you for doing that because... You know, I, I'll throw out these three letter terms all the day, you know, all day long. And people are like, wait, 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 what, wait, what wait, is wait. that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like HIPAA. I did, you know, Amanda and I did a HIPAA uh, episode and it was funny because people are always saying HIPPA. I'm like, no, that's HIPAA, <laughs> Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And it has nothing to do with what you think, you know, so. Um, oh, my favorite is the one when they when they spell it HIPPO. Oh, I know. I know. It's just, or when somebody basically, a professional athlete gets out there and somebody says, are you vaccinated? And they said, that's a violation of my HIPAA rights. It's, it is not. It is not. Oh, it don't get not. me going on Stop that. Stop saying yeah, that. Yeah, we I won't know. even go down that path. I so know. if your doctor stands up in the middle of Starbucks and starts reciting your medical record, now you've got a violation. <laughs> okay. So that that's basically your violation. That's right. But that's no, right. Sean, so I, I, you know, I appreciate your insight on this today because compliance manuals, compliance programs, compliance policies, you know, all kind of bundled into one. I think the takeaway here, and I, and I hope you agree, is that if you want your staff, and I'm talking to our listeners, if you want your staff, you want your providers, you want a, a successful practice, a successful entity, um, even if, you, if you're an ASC, if you're a provider practice, which, whatever you are, if you want it to be successful, everybody has to know how things work. They need to know, you know, what is it that we do? What is it, it that we don't do? And if we don't do it, 
what's the corrective action and is there you know is there disciplinary standards if it's not held up to the highest standard and the only way to do that is put it in writing so you really need to have that there couldn't agree with you more well said all right great well we hope that this uh, qu- this answered a lot of questions for a lot of people today i know we wanted to arm you with some new knowledge that maybe you didn't have before uh, you're only as credible as your current information so we hope you subscribe and download to our nschbc edge podcast so you don't miss an episode we would like to thank sean for being on our podcast today his regulatory insights into this very under discussed topic is very helpful well thank you so much terry i really appreciate the invite and for letting me sit down and spend some time with you. I know we don't get to do it enough. Wink, we wink, don't. nod, nod. <laughs> the moment we get to do it on podcasting, it seems like. Uh, you can reach me or you can reach Sean at nschbc.org. Go to the Find the Consultant tab and type in his or my first name and our information will pop up for you. I know that uh, Sean does take clients on uh, compliance and, and you definitely don't want to miss out on that. As a reminder to our listeners, NSCHBC, Please go to our website at nschbc.org and register for our fourth quarter Medicare update on December 8th to continue to get all of the new rules and regulations that have been published over the last couple of months and the new 2022 fee schedule information that will have a big impact on your reimbursement for 2022 for all providers. Also check out our many free webinars we have each month. Again, nschbc.org. So that's it for us today, everyone. Please join us next month for another episode of the NSCHBC podcast. This is Terry Fletcher. Until next time, make it a great day, a great rest of your month, and happy holidays, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org, the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.